This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation called hyponatremia is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavor, electrolyte drink mix into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasenor formulate LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulate LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavors such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by Christopher Barnes. Christopher, how are you? I'm well. How about you? Excellent. It's uh, nice and early here in the West. It's uh, just gone half past 6 a.m., which will be the afternoon, the day before for you, if I'm getting my calculations right. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the good thing about it being in this time zone here. It's like you're in the future. So you can predict the future compared to the US. Um <laughs> so Chris, you're based in in Seattle. Seattle in Washington on the west coast of, of the US. So Correct. so Chris, you you um you've got this, you've got lots of research looking at um areas of like sleep and leadership, uh sleep and business, uh sleep and things like uh, I suppose emotions, um immoral behavior um you want to call it that cheating all these type of weird and wonderful interesting things but before we talk about some of your research christopher tell us a little bit about yourself and just um you know where you grew up what you did at school play any sport what you're interested in how how did you kind of get to this area that you're in at the moment uh well i grew up about an hour south of seattle uh, so this region is kind of home for me uh, and then before I started my academic career, I spent four years in the United States Air Force in the Air Force Research Laboratory in the Fatigue Countermeasures Branch. So that's a fascinating corner of the Air Force where they examine um, fatigue-related issues. So you have pilots that might fly 50-hour, 60-hour missions. Uh, and so the Air Force decided that they needed to learn something about that and maybe see what they can do to address some of the dangers that come with that. So that's that's where I worked for a few years. I was just a, um, a lieutenant. I didn't have any uh, real academic training. So my job was to help manage the research rather than conduct the research. But I was just fascinated. Uh, and I decided that, no, I want to be like these civilian researchers. I want to I want to do the actual research. Uh, and so I pursued my Ph.D. in organizational behavior. 
which is sort of the uh, a, a mix of psychology and work-related phenomena. So think of it as psychology nested within the workplace. Um, and so I wanted to study how to sleep influence work outcomes. Uh, and so I sat down to read all the uh, academic journals in that topic area. Uh, what did they have to say about sleep? And that was a very fast literature search. Uh, there were just a few articles, which really surprised me, mm. uh, given where I came from. And so that I kind of made it my mission to say, okay, well, that that's not a thing. It should be a thing. So let me sit down and dig in and conduct some research on how does sleep influence uh, people at work. Excellent. So you were, you were in the Air Force as like an operational uh, lieutenant. So what, what made you join the military? What was the, what was the attraction there? Um, well, I, I came from a military family, um, and I was also kind of trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I, I didn't know what my path was going to be, and I thought, okay, well, I know people can sometimes find a find a good path to career success in the Air Force, so let me give that a shot and see what happens. And it just worked out so perfectly for me to find exactly the right career path and this topic of sleep. And my mentor in the Air Force, uh, she got her PhD in organizational behavior from Michigan State University, and that's where I got my same PhD in the same program. So I just wanted to be like her, really. Uh, but <laughs> things have things have gone well from there, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that people like people don't. Um, I know a few people now have been in the military and then went back and did PhDs, and it's it's interesting because people go, "Why would you go that way?" Like it's it's fascinating. It, yeah, why? I think people, I'm I'm happy to be a civilian now. Um, yeah. I think this is a better fit for me than the military was, but I really enjoyed the four years that I was in. Yeah, I think I, I said to say I did five years as a, a frontline sort of infantry corporal and I went, it was great when I was young and I had its time and I really enjoyed it. But it was one of those decision points and like the estate do you go. And I know another guy as well, I, who was in the Navy, same thing as well. And he was like, yeah, decision point, will I stay or will I go? And I think sometimes it's good to know when to move on instead of just like, you know, beating a dead horse, as people say. And then you got to pursue your passion and go a different ways. So. So, yeah. yeah, I had kind of a scary moment in that uh, I had an offer on the table for the Air Force to sponsor my PhD, and then I would have to remain in the Air Force for quite a few years after that to pay back. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to decide, am I staying in? Am I getting out? And so the scary moment was for me to say, okay, I want to get out. I want to be civilian. But what does that look like? Uh, do, will I have a job at the end of this PhD program? Mm -hmm. And so I think things that went, worked out nicely for me. I have no complaints, but I didn't know how that was going to go in that moment. How, how did you feel actually, Christopher, just from um, from going from like a position, like a lieutenant is a, it's a, it, obviously it's the lower end of the officer spectrum, but it's, it's still a high ranking position. Like it's, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you can still have like, you know, you know, 40, 50, 60 people, even up to a hundred people on in a, in your command for certain projects or certain well, jobs. I, yeah. I was in kind of an odd corner of the air force in the, in the research laboratory. And um I remember when I got there within the first day or two, uh, one of the captains around, he drew an organization chart. Yeah. Uh, and in our organization, there were so many civilian PhDs, like they were the ones doing the mm -hmm. real work. Uh, so it was a super top heavy organization. So he drew this organization chart with a bunch of these people who I'd be working with. And then he put one box at the very bottom and it said you and all the arrows were pointing downward <laughs> towards me. Uh, so normally, yes, there would be quite a few people uh, that would be in lower ranks that that I would be in charge of. But in this particular context, I was actually the person at the very bottom. Yeah, yeah. And when you went back to become like a, a, a student, so to speak, with that experience, did you find that tough to kind of just flip it all upside down and start again? <laughs> well, uh, for the first uh, three or four months, 
in my PhD program, I called everyone sir and ma'am and used, you know, formal titles, doctor, professor, and it drove them all nuts. And finally, <laughs> my advisor sat me down and said, Chris, okay, we need to work together on projects and you need to be able to catch my mistakes and bring ideas to the table. And if we have this hierarchy between us, that's not going to happen. So I need you to call me John and not Dr. Hollenbeck. And at that point, I was like, okay, I get it. I will make this painful adjustment. Uh, and now I wouldn't have it any other way, of course, but that was quite the transition for me. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Did you come across a, a good friend of mine when you were at the Air Force or his work uh, called uh, John Caldwell? Yeah. Yeah. He was in the the same uh, part of the Air Force and the, the Air Force Research Laboratory doing some really cool stuff with, I remember putting together some sound booths for him uh, for some really neat studies he was doing there. So yeah, he's done some really interesting work. Yeah, John's a very good friend of mine. So yeah, I've actually um, okay. hung out with him when he lived in Hawaii. He's been on the podcast. Uh, we've done a few papers together. He helped me out my PhD um, collaboration. We'll probably catch up every few months and have a yarn. He does some work in our business as well. He does some contract work. So yeah, Seth and John, uh, we've known each other for, oh, it must be a good 15, 16 years. Yeah. So when I was working mm. in a mining company, John was working for a company called Fatigue Science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he was doing some... He, uh, he probably doesn't remember who I am. I was one of the many lieutenants floating around, uh, but I definitely remember him. No, I, I he would, he would, he 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 would, he remembers everybody. Yeah, he would not. I'll drop his name at <laughs> the next time. I never even thought about the connection. I didn't, I didn't do enough research maybe on you. Think <laughs> up, think up enough dirt on Google on you to find out that connection. But um, yeah, John is a John's a great guy. Yeah. So so you did this you did this PhD in organizational behavior, um, and so then from there you kind of started doing your own research. How how did you get that sort of started? How did that kind of how did that kick off? How did you get it going? Because like well, you said, there wasn't I, much there wasn't much work. Sorry, there wasn't much work in this space. I'm just interested to know how you kind of got to jump and start getting like you know funding or getting people on board or how you started this whole kind of new area. It was kind of scary. Um, it was exciting and scary. So what what made it exciting is that it was it felt like a, a new frontier within the management research uh, domain. Uh, but that also made it scary because I had the concern that if it's not already in our domain, does that mean that people will not take it as a legitimate topic to study? Will they see it as like a weird topic or irrelevant or something that a different discipline should be doing? So I was kind of had that concern. So I started off, if you if you look at my CV early on, I had more research on other topics than I did on sleep. So my intention was always to be a sleep person, but I kind of diversified my risk. And so working with John Hollenbeck, he's uh, one of the primary figures in Teams research. So I knew that if I worked with him on Teams research, that we could do some good work together and that I would have a path to legitimacy there. Um, and so I published several Teams papers with John, uh, but I also kind of started a little side program on sleep that kind of grew as time went on. And my intention was that if that if that program on sleep gets some traction, then I will expand that and that will become my primary program of research. Uh, and that's that's definitely how things shifted. It did help that John and I started early on with a theoretical paper on sleep deprivation in teams. So the, the team stuff that John typically does and then the uh, sleep stuff that I wanted to do, we just kind of brought that together and that kind of helped put a, uh, a nice um, uh, foothold for me to, to build a larger program of research and have some confidence that, yeah, there's there's actually an audience for this within the management domain. Of course, there's been sleep research for decades uh, in other literatures, uh, but within this, this domain of people who are 
um, training leaders, training MBA students to go be managers uh, in organizations. That was an audience that historically hadn't seen this topic. So it was really neat to be early in on that process of bringing in the very rich sleep literature into the management domain and making it relevant to, to both parties in a way that uh, we really hadn't seen before. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. Um, because what actually I'll ask you this question because I'll be interested to know what you think about this. What makes a good leader, Chris, independent of the sleep stuff? But what do you think makes a good leader? Ah, man, there are there's so much content written uh, to answer that. I think my own my own spin on this particular question would be a good leader takes care of the people so that the people can do the work. Uh, and I say this because we teach a lot of MBA students and a mistake that a lot of the early stage MBA graduates do is one, they try to do all the work, uh, mm -hmm. even though they have subordinates, they're just used to doing the work themselves and they haven't really figured out how, the, how do you manage people to do the work. Uh, and the other mistake they make is when they do uh, involve their subordinates in their work, they work the subordinates way too hard. They, they redline things. They, they have their eyes on the next promotion. So they push, 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 push. Uh, and then to keep up, the subordinates um, end up sacrificing sleep, sacrificing time with their family, end up getting burnt out, used up, sick. Maybe they quit. So I think the, the nice way to navigate between those two horns of the dilemma here is to focus on, okay, I have a job to do. I have people that are here to help do the job. As long as I make sure they have what they need to, to thrive and, and to do sustainable work. And, you know, I trained them the right way, provided the right structure. Uh, then they will be the mechanism by, uh, by way, the way that this job gets done uh, rather than limiting this all to just one brain of mine. We have five brains or 10 brains or 20 brains, mm -hmm. and that's really what's going to get the work done. So I think there's lots of good answers to this particular question, but that's kind of my perspective on it. Yeah. And then the, the inverse of that, what, what would be a bad leader? Would it just be the opposite of all of those? Or is there any sort of things that jump out straight away that you go, oh, these are the traits that like you don't want to see in a leader? You know, I think there's lots of ways you can be a bad leader. The bad leaders that that I worry about are the ones who think they have a good objective that they're pursuing and that that justifies various forms of mistreatment. Uh, and so a lot of times this, the way this pans out is with abusive supervision, a leader will say, well, I'm just very passionate and, and I'm also a perfectionist and I'm doing really important work. It has to be done perfectly. And I'm really passionate about that. Uh, and so, yeah, sure. I yell at my people and I criticize them in front of other people, but that's just, that goes with being passionate and a perfectionist. And so I'm like, no, you don't get to cloak that bad behavior with good intentions and call it good behavior. Um, I think there's lots of other ways that, that people can be bad leaders, but um, it's this is one way where they kind of fool themselves that they're not being bad leaders. Uh, and that makes it especially problematic. That's actually, um, that's a nice jumping off point, Chris, into one of your research papers. So you did a paper back in 2015 that was published in the Academy of Management, the Academy of Management Journal, um, where you did look at this abusive behavior and you had engagement on one axis and, and abusive um, on another axis. And basically, if I'm summarizing this right, the supervisor's sleep quality was associated with daily uh, abusive behaviors that ego depletion, and it was linked with fluctuations in sleep. So maybe before we unpack that a little bit, can we can we maybe um, determine or clarify some of these terms? So when we talk about engagement, how would you determine engagement from low to high? 
So work engagement is essentially the degree to which someone is investing themselves into the work that they're supposed to be doing that day. So somebody who's really highly engaged has fully invested all their time and effort and attention into doing well in that job. And somebody who is disengaged uh, might be doing something else entirely altogether. So that's that's work engagement. Right. And then you have this um, ego depletion model as well, which is um, from a different paper back in, I think in the same the same paper actually, or the same journal, um, I think it might be the same paper as well, where you talk about leader sleep quantity and quality, ego depletion, abusive behavior, and work engagement. Um, when we say ego depletion, and when I've spoken about your work in in this context, people are like, oh yeah, me ego, my ego. It's like, you know, some <laughs> negative thing that the ego is like, oh yeah, he walks around or she walks around with her chest puffed out, you know, trying to be the boss. So um, how would you That's- clarify ego? In this, in this, yeah, I think yeah. we can we can leave that technical term aside yeah. um, for for eopletion. In fact, there's there's an ongoing debate about uh, what the right term is and what we mean by that. What I mean in these research studies is very consistent with a long history of research within the sleep domain, and that is that people have a hard time exerting self control when they don't get the sleep that they need, when they get insufficient sleep or they get poor quality sleep. Uh, And there are some physiological processes that are primarily tied to the prefrontal cortex part of the brain. This is a a region that is especially heavily involved in executive function and self-control. So when people are getting poor quality sleep or they are sleep deprived, uh, that part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, tends to be uh, less effective, uh, which means the activities that draw from that part of their brain are also impaired. Uh, and the way we see this play, played out in this particular paper, as well as several other papers that are, that are in this space, is that people who are sleep deprived or getting poor quality sleep uh, are therefore less able to in- exert self-control and they're more likely to cave to temptations. Uh, in the case of this particular paper examining abusive supervision, this means that uh, you can imagine if you're a boss, maybe you're having a tough day, you're having a frustrating moment, something like that, then you might have this temptation to lash out at your subordinates, maybe to yell at them, call them names, criticize them in front of others, something like that. And on, on a good day, uh, when you're not impaired, you're able to sufficiently exert self-control to not cave to that temptation and say, okay, that's not the way for me to be the best possible boss. I'm going to do something else instead. But when your self-control is impaired, then it's just so much harder to resist that temptation. And so you're more likely to slip. And so you yell at them, you treat them too harshly. uh, Maybe you poke fun at them in sort of a mean-spirited way. There's lots of ways that you can be jerky towards your subordinates. Uh, And we just find that those behaviors are more prevalent when leaders, uh, after a poor night of sleep by those leaders. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the downstream outcome of that is when leaders engage in that abusive supervision, uh, their subordinates are less engaged uh, in their work that day. So this is probably not surprising, right? If your boss treats you uh, in a really jerky way, either you're distracted by thinking of you're ruminating about the way you were just treated, or maybe you're just mad. And so you say, I'm going to do less work. Or there's lots of ways that can play out. Uh, but the idea here from this paper is that there's this crossover effect of the leader's sleep. So the leader gets a poor quality night of sleep. The next day at work, they treat their subordinates worse. And as a result of that, those subordinates are less engaged at work. So ultimately we're saying there's this indirect path from leader sleep to subordinate work engagement. Uh, and at the time, this was a this was a pretty novel idea. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my previous research indicated that 
my own sleep can influence my own work outcomes. And this was a, a paper that, that expanded beyond that and said, well, my sleep can also influence other people's work outcomes as well. So if anything, we might be underestimating the effect of uh, poor sleep or sleep deprivation, uh, especially from the perspective of a leader. Yeah, when I read this paper, I found it fascinating because um, when I read this, uh, man, leaders are just like babies. <laughs> like when babies or little kids don't get a good night's sleep, they lash out, they get tired. You know, that was the, that was my first thought. I was like, wow, as humans, you know, we are so susceptible to this sleep loss or sleep variation. And then you sort of sit back and you reflect on your own sort of behavior or your own kind of patterns and think, oh, yeah. I've had a few days like that where I've just kind of snapped where I shouldn't have, or not just even at work, but at other people as well, you know, my wife or friends or whatever, or you kind of get, you know, pissed off, so to speak, and you just lash out for no reason. And, and invariably, it comes back to a lot of like, yeah, sleep loss or sleep deprivation. Absolutely. Well, there, Amy, Amy Gordon at the University of Michigan has some fascinating research, which examines uh, the relationship between sleep deprivation and marital conflict. So the outcome here is a little bit different, mm -hmm. but the process is very similar, right? That the way we treat people gets worse when we don't get the sleep that we need. So Amy Gordon's research focuses on that marital relationship. Mine is focused more on workplace relationships, but there's clear convergence here across these different um, research effects. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, And this is interesting because um, if you look at a lot of the research, obviously, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is only like 40, 50 years old. It's not an organization that's been going for centuries. Um, sleep research really is still in its its infancy, you know, since the 60s and 70s really where it's kind of taken off as a discipline. Um, you know, parts of chronobiology that are looking at shift work and the application to these real world um, areas are very new. Like your work is, you know, really only prevalent in the last 10 years, as you said, and you'd be the leader in the field here. But if we look at that research over time, we're seeing like as societal changes, you know, we have all these technological advances and things have been published on this before um, from, you know, different organizations. We're getting less sleep. There's more prevalence of sleep disorders, more sleep problems, obesity is going up, metabolic conditions are going up. You know, your research has shown that even with this poor sleep, here's all the ramifications into society like sleep and leadership. You just mentioned your colleague's name there um, in terms of like marital conflict. So if as a West in, in the Western world, generally, we seem to be going backwards in this respect. And an actual fact, as a comment on this as well, if you look at, because the other one we've heard recently is people go, oh, yeah, but we're living longer and, and we're, we're more healthier. The, the value of dying, I don't know if you've seen this report last year that came out, Chris, it's um, the value of dying from The Lancet. It's a 50 page um, piece that was published. An actual fact, the life expectancy has gone back in the U.S., stagnant in the UK and stagnant in Australia. So we're not actually living longer. And in actual fact, <laughs> we're just, you know, we're actually getting sicker really as we go along. And this is independent of COVID, by the way. So the first thing people go, oh, that's because of COVID. No, this data was all pre-COVID. Um, so, you know, we're, we seem to be not doing ourselves much good really in terms of our, in our, in our health. Do you think this sleep and leadership field will actually get worse as we go on, seeing as people... <laughs> sort of work hard or don't get enough sleep and not looking after their health? Is this something that's going to just keep getting worse and worse? Let, let me provide an optimistic perspective here. So I think the the data are very consistent with what you're talking about, that the the trends uh, and, and the, the, the studies examining trends have their own flaws. But I think across the different studies, it's pretty clear that across many decades now and maybe, maybe longer time span than decades, we've been sleeping less and less. 
Um, and it's gotten to a point where it's clearly a problem. What I'm hoping is that we are at the low point now. Uh, and the reason that I hope that is because these conversations, we didn't have these. Like when I started my PhD program in 2004, um, sleep was not such a big present word uh, in, in our conversations across social media and the news, wherever else. Uh, it, it wasn't absent, uh, but it wasn't such a major topic. Uh, and we've had several voices emerge as, as gaining quite large audiences and I think converting a lot of people to believe in sleep. And so you're playing a role in this. I think Matt Walker has been a huge voice in this. Uh, Ariana Huffington as, a, as more on the practitioner side, being a big voice to talk about sleep. So what I'm hoping is that things have gotten so bad that people are feeling so much pain from this that now they're starting to see the price that we're paying. And because of that, we're going to start turning the corner. Now, I have no evidence to back uh, yeah. the idea that we're going to turn that corner, uh, but this is what I really hope to be true. Uh, and it's hard for me to imagine all this uh, conversational space being devoted to sleep and people not starting to, to make better decisions and to restructure their lives and reprioritize things so that we can get where we need to go. Uh, if, if that is what happens, that's really sad because then we're suffering just as much as before, but now we're more aware of it. Uh, but I, th I think we can do better. And I think we're, we're starting to see some indicators that so many people are talking about it. So many people are going to start taking action that we're going to see that positive trend. Yeah, I jump between the optimistic and the pessimistic. Um, I I agree with you, Chris, in what you said in terms of like the better focus. And obviously we do this podcast, we write blogs, we do a lot of promotional stuff free to try and help people understand that. And I think that's good. I think if you look at lots of the papers over the last number of years are big kind of epidemiology scale papers that don't really account for education, information, individual sort of, um, you know, um, actions or countermeasures. So it can be difficult to kind of parse out what works and what doesn't. But I do agree with you. I think there is a corner being turned and people are very interested in that. The pessimistic side of me is, is the fact that we're constantly sort of jacked in to the internet 24-7 the way work has changed with the ability to work from anywhere, which is great in terms of flexibility, but it brings this ability for leaders to be constantly on people's backs about stuff and not being able to take a break. It requires a lot of discipline Um, you know, the high use of electronic devices, which we'll get onto in a moment. Um, the other part then as well is, um, is probably economic and social factors. So we had a, a, I chaired a shift work symposium session at the Australasian Sleep Association a couple of weeks ago in Adelaide. And in my closing remarks, I, I discussed this because it's all well and good to talk about this, particularly at the middle classes or upper classes. But when we start getting down into the, the working classes or the shift workers, there's people out there that have had to take on extra work or extra jobs to basically meet basic mortgage payments. So it's not the fact that they don't want to be healthy. It's the fact, and it was a great story in the financial review a few weeks ago. Well, it's not. It's a great story to illustrate it. It's a very sad story where a gentleman at the age of 45 was working 60 plus hours a week just to meet mortgage payments and pay grocery bills. And he had three kids. That's a guy that's out there working hard, um, you know, across two jobs. And, you know, in one way, I admire him for standing up and working as much as he can to support his family. And the other way, you think to yourself, with these interest rates killing people, like this is extremely sad that people can't focus on these things. So I'm kind of you know, kind of going between the the both. And I don't want to get into a big kind of a political conversation because, you know, we 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 get very divisive, I think, in the Western world and in politics over the last few years, not only in America, but here in Australia and in, even in Western Europe and places like Ireland and England. But 
it's just all of these factors that will impact. So that's why I kind of jump between optimistic and pessimistic at least on this topic. Yeah, I think this is clearly a topic where there's individual choice involved, but that individual choice is pushed around quite heavily by a lot of systemic factors, um, sociocultural factors, economic factors, uh, the way organizations are structured and how how employees are expected to act. We can't ask any one employee to change the system. Um, and I talk about these things in my, my MBA classes. So I teach a leadership class. I'll teach again next quarter in just uh, a month or so. Uh, and I spend a full session in that leadership class on sleep. Uh, and throughout that quarter, even before we get to sleep, I, I talk about how there are there are better ways that we can lead that will help our employees live a better life and help them make better contributions to the organization as well. Um, and I always tell my students, like, look, it's hard to make broad systemic changes, uh, in part because it's hard to convince your bosses to make the changes. It's hard to change upward. It's a lot easier to change downward. But these MBA students that I'm teaching are going to generally go out and be successful in their organizations. And they might start as uh, either frontline or, or middle level supervisors, but a lot of them are going to keep going up uh, and their influence is going to broaden and broaden across, uh, across the course of their career. So eventually they will be in a position where they can enact broader change, at least within their own organizations. So the more we can do what you and I are doing right now, the more we can start to get people who are not currently at the top, but who will eventually be at the top and then can start to push change from the top down to complement the bottom-up changes that we're also trying to implement. Chris, what do you think about going one step further and, you know, sort of, I would use the word infiltrating um, people when they're younger, uh, you know, primary school, high school, secondary school, undergraduate degrees, Has have you come across any work done at that level? Because I've seen very little, if any, um, where sleep programs have been rolled out or integrated into scientific programs for high school students. Have you seen any of this work? Or you know, I saw that the NH, the uh, the NIH has some sleep education content that is developed for like adolescents, especially I think high school students. I don't think it's very broadly deployed. And mm -hmm. I can remember, you know, growing up not far from here in both middle school and high school, we had uh, different versions of health classes where they talked about uh, exercise and diet and don't smoke and, you know, uh, all, all the other stuff that you get in those health classes and basically zero content on sleep. So there's yeah. just kind of this gap between the content which exists and the younger people who would clearly benefit from getting that content. Yeah, I have the, I have this idea and anybody is welcome to rip off and duplicate this idea. There's no trademark on this, but um, I had this idea before the COVID pandemic and we were talking to a school about potentially doing it, but it was basically two ones. One at sort of the kindergarten primary school where it was very basic using animations, cartoons, short videos to do like a 20 minutes or half an hour thing on sleep um, in conjunction with a a more detailed presentation for the parents because I think they're like they're like leaders in that respect, right? Um, and then the second part was to uh with high school students was to do a more detailed program where we would actually run an experiment using either questionnaires or actigraphy. And then we could use that data as a pool to then analyze it and teach people like basic descriptive statistics using Excel or, you know, break the class into two and do like a t-test but then all of a sudden it could use that data not only to have like a mathematical aspect so it could feed into their maths program second part then would obviously feed into like doing a scientific experiment to write up the methods 
and then write the actual paper. But then the intro and discussion, and we could bring in maybe something from 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 the English department to help them with a bit of creative writing and sort of telling the story as well. So, yeah, we had a, a couple of schools interested in that, but then the COVID pandemic happened and our focus has been more on on businesses at the moment because of just the volume of work that's coming through. But it's it's a, I think that would be a great place for us to to try and infiltrate or if anybody's working in that space, you know, um, to, to do that because then we can, I don't know, we can healthy brainwash people before they get to the workplace if possible, you know? So, so yeah. I, I had kind of a, a, a wake up call on that front um, a few years back. So my mother-in-law uh, lives in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur and she's involved in, in helping to teach some, some refugee students. I think they're from Myanmar. Yep. Um, so these are, these are kids ranging from, I think about six to about 16, uh, that were, you know, living very challenging lives as refugees. Um, and they were struggling because these kids were not getting very much sleep. Uh, and so that was making all the other things at school more difficult. So she said, Hey, Chris, you're visiting, you're a sleep guy. Why don't you talk to these kids about sleeping more? Uh, but before you have that conversation, you should know that, uh, these are, you know, medium to large families. They're living in like a one bedroom unit, uh, and their parents work, uh, very odd hours. And there's lots and lots of factors, which are clearly disruptive to their sleep. So in that context, why don't you help them figure out how to sleep better and sleep more I'm like, uh, gosh, how do I, how do I solve all those problems? I, well, mm -hmm. I think the best thing that I, that I did with, with that audience was to say, okay, here are the boundaries that are making it difficult for you to get the sleep that you can within those boundaries there's still some room for personal choice. Uh, there are some nights where you might be staying up extra late to watch TV or something like that, where you could be sleeping. So we have to figure out with these audiences, even with kids, like what are the boundaries? What are the hard stops? Where nope, they just definitely cannot implement this particular recommendation, even though it would clearly help them. There are structural boundaries that prevent that solution from being implemented. So what can be implemented with that audience? And so I kind of take that perspective back to uh, teaching MBA students where I say, okay, here's a menu of choices and uh, your contexts are all going to be different. Some of you are going to work for mm -hmm. Amazon and some of you are going to work in the maritime industry. Uh, and so I can give you, you know, a dozen recommendations for what we should do to sleep better and to, to help mitigate some of the effects of sleep deprivation on work outcomes. But I know that what works well in Amazon won't necessarily work well in the maritime industry. So it's up to you to kind of make that match. We can ask adults to make that match, uh, but with kids, we kind of have to help them figure that out and present it in a way that the match is already there for them. Yeah, I think this is a, a an interesting point because it, it's often the difference between training and education. When you train mm. people, it's like, this happens, do this. This happens, do this. I think in the sleep world, and I think particularly in any of these sort of human biology, physiology aspects that we we talk about, I believe more in education. I'm not one to tell people like these are the rules, these are what you have to do, particularly when it comes to this area. You know, unless there's some safety critical issue and you're like, do not walk into that processing plant, you will die, right? So then there has to be some very, you know, very strict boundaries. But when it comes to human performance, human optimization, I think giving people, like you said, this menu of choices and going, there is trade-offs. Yes, yeah, some nights you might want to, you know, hit that next episode on a on a show of a streaming platform. It's not that Netflix is evil and trying to keep you up. It's your choice whether to, to click it or not. So you can click that next episode and stay up and it's an extra hour. But can you stay in an hour, you know, sleep in an hour later? Now, when I was 24, maybe I could do that. But now, sort of in my mid to late 40s, I can't do that because I'm awake at half five. So I know I can't click the next episode, right? So maybe I have to start watching TV earlier the next day. So it's all about these, 
these kind of trade-offs and what I'm going to do in terms of allowing that time. So giving people that flexibility and, and understanding that sleep is dynamic and it does change across different days. It changes across different ages um, you know, or, or parts of your life or depending on your work pattern when you're a shift worker, not a shift worker, your chronotype, prevalence of sleep disorder, kids, no kids, training for an event, uh, working odd hours. You've got people reporting to their shift workers. Maybe you're, they're on call. Maybe there's incidents where people ring you up. There's so many factors. And it's and you probably get this question as well, Chris. People go, well, how do I sleep better? Well, it's like, you know, it's it's an endless question because you have to ask, you have to end up asking them nearly 50 questions before you can even start giving them some advice. So yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very weird and wonderful wobbly feel, but I like that approach where you're giving people this like array of options, right? I often say to them, I'm going to give you a smorgasbord now and it's up to you to decide, you know, yeah. what, what you're going to take off of. Although I, I still try to take the optimist perspective that if we give them the right menu of options, not only are we helping them make choices now, but also when they get to positions of power, maybe we help them make better choices for how to structure their policies that will help more broadly across other people as well. Yeah, I, I think it's an it's an overlook aspect, Chris. We have a, a diagnostic and we have this paper published looking at um, you know the fatigue risk management system, which you'd be aware of in businesses. And we have these 14 elements that we've had published in the in the in the journal Safety and Health at Work. And it basically says like these are the 14 elements you should consider, or like you can assess your organization against them. And one of those elements is leadership and commitment. Now it's not as as, as in detail as your work, but it's more about you know about the cultural aspects and leaders, you know, supporting people and taking breaks and so on. And it's surprising how many organizations would basically have zero to little in place for this aspect. But leadership and commitment is such an important aspect of, you know, deploying or improving a system. But this component of it is just not there. Do you, do you think, Chris, in your work and what you've seen over the last few years, that leaders are being um, extended, overworked, um, or the span of control is, is too high compared to what it was maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago? Because we often hear this, oh, back in like, you know, 95 or 2000 or 2005, when you had 10 people reporting me, now I've got 30 or because it cuts, this happens and so on. So many leaders maybe listen to this and going, well, that's all well and good, Ian and Chris, but, you know, my workload has doubled or trebled. And because of, you know, internet and electronic devices and yada, 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 I'm expected to do more and I'm managing people across the world or across the country. So how do you think that is feeding into um, into this? So it, it seems like there are some general trends for work getting worse, uh, worse in a lot of ways, one being that we were asking people to do more of, more with less. Uh, and back when I was in the Air Force, uh, they, they actually said that more with less. Um, and I don't think we often say those exact words in most business contexts, but that is kind of the ultimate uh, um, message that's being sent. Um, is, is that a trend that is getting uh, much stronger now? Uh, will it continue? It's, it's hard to project out those trends, but I do think that uh, for a lot of macroeconomic reasons, uh, like global competition, um, things like that, there there are pressures to cut down on the workforce required to do the same amount of work, uh, and this clearly creates a lot of a lot of problems with with regards to what a few of us call broadly human sustainability. Uh, so essentially, your ability to sustain a given level of work uh, at a given level of quality. Uh, which would be different than what is like your maximum capacity, right? You might be able to, if we use a sports analogy, you could sprint a lot faster than you might be able to run a marathon, but that sprint is not sustainable, right? So human mm. sustainability is kind of taking into account sleep as well as lots of other factors for for what can what can a given group of people sustain for the long term uh, to contribute value a year from now and not just a week from now. 
So I think there are some clear pressures pushing us away from human sustainability. Uh, and this is another case where I tell MBA students, like this is, you have to try to fight upwards uh, against this. You have to make the case to your yeah. boss for if you're going to give me this deadline and this group of people to meet that deadline, here's the cost. Yeah, uh, I can meet that deadline yeah. with those people, but some of them are going to get sick. Some of them are going to mm. get burnt out. Some of them are going to are going to quit afterwards. Are we sure we need to pay that price? Could we instead extend the deadline? Could we instead have a few more people working on this project? Uh, and sometimes the person up above is going to say, you know what? I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. Sure, I, I can give you an extra week or I can give you a few more people. And sometimes that boss up above is going to say, nope, I have pressure from above me as well. You got to do this with these people. Um, yeah. And so you lose that battle, but you have to be willing to fight that battle if you're a leader who really cares about their people. And yeah. then eventually you are the higher level leader. And so you can make better decisions for your own subordinates who are dealing with their subordinates. I think um, that's such a good point, Chris. And I often say it to people as well, because I get this conundrum put to me by other leaders as well. And I said to them exactly what you've said. It's about what is the impact of this? And I said to them, you've got to sell up as well or tell up because you've got to say to them. And I always said to them, think in your mind's eye about like pillars on a board. Tell your leader about what's the impact to the health and safety of your people. What's the impact to your people in terms of absenteeism, presenteeism, sickness, and so on? What's the impact into the productivity? Will there be more variability because we're pushing people? Because it's not just about the output, but maybe the quality is going to be quite variable or we're going to have more errors within our work or we just can't do that. Or maybe there's interdependencies that feed into that where we're reliant on other departments. So this is what's going to happen. Or maybe you need to bring in other people to make that. And then the other part is, What's going to be the impact maybe downstream to our customer if we're in the value chain? And then finally, what's the impact in terms of cost financial? Sometimes I think when we leave with the cost in terms of the financial aspect, our leaders just switch off. So if we think about, about the people first, like the health, the safety, then the people, then the productivity, our customer, and then the cost finally, it seems to articulate a better business case about what the impact is um, from these because... Um, yeah, when we mention money, leaders just like go to sleep now, so to speak. You know, they just turn off because they're yeah. Sick of so this is another it. conversation that I that I make sure to have with my my MBA students is that a, th a common mistake mm. for a lot of MBA graduates is to manage by spreadsheet. Yeah. So you look at the spreadsheet, you yeah. look at the costs, you look at the revenues, and you try to find ways to decrease costs and increase revenues, uh, and that will produce the best bottom lines for your work unit, and some of that that success will be attributed to you, and your career progresses. Uh, the problem is a lot of these things we're talking about don't show up in the spreadsheets, at least not mm -hmm. in the near term. So yeah. sure, you cut you cut your payroll by firing 10% of your workforce. Uh, you're still asking the remaining 90% to do the same amount of work. Uh, yeah. And in the short term, you have saved money. But there's a cost here that you, you're not going to see tomorrow. You're not going to see next yeah. week. It's a long-term cost. And eventually, you'll probably see it somewhere in your spreadsheet as that uh, as that bill comes to, uh, to be paid. But you won't know... You won't be able to attribute directly back to the, those cuts that you made before. It'll be unclear exactly where. Why did these uh, costs per unit go up? Uh, it seems like they should be going down, but the cost is going the wrong direction. What's happened here? What's happened is that your your workforce uh, you've destroyed some of your own human capital. Yeah, you've gotten rid of some of your human capital, and you've degraded the rest of your human capital by asking them to do too much uh, in an unsustainable way. 
And so if I think if we extend out these time horizons for what what's the what is the relevant time frame for us to consider when making our decisions, if we can extend that beyond the week or often in business context as the quarter, like quarterly reports, if we can extend out to a year or a few years, then we'll do a better job of reprioritizing our employees as a way to get long-term value for our other stakeholders rather than what's going to be best for tomorrow. Yeah, I think this is why, you know, good organizations will have more of a balanced scorecard approach to these things and look at what the true impact is, because you're dead right. I've seen this happen as well before where, you know, it cuts happen in one area or it gets attributed to a project for sort of, you know, strategic cost management that gets pushed over. But then finally, at the end of the year, overtime, overtime you know, is like 200 um, percent or like you're saying as well, the cost of the capital. Sometimes I've seen it in teams where they turn over 100%. And they're like, well, why did that happen? That's bad leadership. It's not bad leadership. It's like you give us a deadline to me or you give us scarcity of resources to do it and you did a stretch target. <laughs> and so this is what happens. This is ramifications. And these are sometimes the things that are not quantifiable. Um, if you're not looking at them as indicators on a day-to-day -day or a, you know in the short or medium-term in, um, in business plan. And I think you're dead right. I've seen this as well, Chris, where I've gone to organizations and conducted diagnostics and when you see a clear link uh, between where you see high fatigue risk in terms of using like biomechanical modeling where it's very high risk where there's lots of overtime you see the ramifications across the health data high um, incident rates low hazards being reported which probably indicates that people are hiding stuff or not reporting it or just pushing on with the job high absenteeism high turnover. And then when you get into the productivity stuff, <clears throat> it's not so much you see it in the production in terms of like, you know, X amount of widgets per hour, but you see it in the hidden things, operational delays. Why was there operational delays? Oh, because we had no people. Why was there no people? Because people rang in six, so it goes back into HR or people taking breaks or then you start seeing machinery failure as well as secondary outcomes. Well, why was that machine failed? Because we didn't have enough parts. Why do we not have parts? Or oh, because we don't have like, um, uh, a proper mechanic or a fitter who ordered those and we're now we're waiting again to install it so you start seeing these kind of it comes on it, it comes like you know entangled over time and when you start tracing it back you see this kind of web of you know sort of these issues that we've been speaking about all come back and it's really hard to make one countermeasure to solve it and it's looking at this more as a spectrum in terms of leadership and management as opposed to like this is the one thing we should do here's a silver bullet so yeah, totally agree with you from my experience over the last 15, 20 years in this space. And I think that this comes back to a trade-off that a lot of managers don't want to appreciate that it exists. I think to some degree, there is a baseline trade-off between the quantity of work we can do and the quality of work we can do. And at a certain level, maybe there's not a trade-off. Maybe over the next four hours, I can do a lot of work and it can be high quality work. But if you're asking me to work 20 hours a day, 18 hours a day, I can probably do more stuff. I can produce mm -hmm. more widgets. Uh, I can flip more burgers, whatever, whatever the task is. I can make more PowerPoint slides, but <laughs> the defect rate is going to go up and the creativity in that work is going to go down and the overall quality of what I'm doing is going to suffer. And so when I talk to my MBA students about this, I say, okay, maybe some of you are going to either have jobs or manage people in jobs where they could basically do the job in their sleep. Uh, and the job is so close to automated that all they're doing is flipping the burger and there's no decision-making required. There's no creativity required. And so maybe for those kinds of jobs, uh, working 18 hours a day doesn't produce significantly lower quality than working eight hours a day 
perhaps. But most of you are going to work in, say, the tech industry. That's the, the dominant industry in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, so Amazon is our, our biggest employer. Microsoft is another big one. Lots of others in the area. So you're going to go into industries where creativity is like the lifeblood of the industry. And mistakes are super costly, especially when they're caught late in the process. And so if this is the case, then you don't want to make that trade-off between working more, but working worse. It's everyone's better off if you work less, but do a better job. And so if we can better appreciate that trade-off, we can do a better, better job of making choices that will produce the best quality work. Um, and this is going to be hard to spot in those spreadsheets. But when we look at the, the bottom line over the course of years, that bottom line will improve when we can make better choices about quality versus quantity and where we are on that trade-off. Chris, you you also did some work in this area, which really caught my eye as well, because um, I don't know why. It's always fascinating me to see this type of stuff. But you looked at, um, you had a paper published in 2020 in Sleep Health <clears throat> looking at uh, unethical behavior. And then in 2015, you also had a paper on, on moral awareness. How is how is sleep impacting people's um, behavior, unethical behavior? Well, there's there's kind of two paths here that that uh, my colleagues and I have highlighted. There might be others as well. Uh, the the simpler one ties into what I was talking about earlier with um, self control. So in the workplace, we are faced with many temptations to behave unethically. Um, I can hide my mistakes. I can blame someone else for my mistakes. I can take credit for someone else's work. I can cook the books. Uh, lots of other things. People can be very, very creative uh, in the ways that they can not only engage in unethical behavior, but also personally benefit from doing so. Mm. Most of the time, we're good people and we use self-control to overcome those temptations. But when our self-control is impaired, then we're more likely to cave to those temptations. So in a, in a paper in 2011, my colleagues and I found that uh, the same person is more or less unethical on different days based in part on how much and how well they slept the night before. Uh, and so this was this was kind of a novel take in the ethics literature because most of that, that literature had focused on some people are good people and some people are bad people. And so we picked up this idea that the same person can be good or bad, depending in part on, on their sleep the night before. Um, so that's the, the self-control aspect. Um, in a different paper, we find that it's also sort of a cognitive, um, there's a cognitive path as well. Uh, and this is based on moral awareness. So a lot of the times, well, I would say some of the times moral decisions are very clearly morally flavored. Um, should we execute this person who's been convicted of murder and whether or not that person's executed is clearly morally Latin. And we can have different conversations about what is the right choice, but it's very clear to all of us that this is a morally Latin decision. Uh, there are other decisions like which pair of socks should I wear today that are clearly not morally Latin at all. Uh, but in between those two extremes, there's a lot of lot of gray. And so there are many situations that we would encounter in which there is a moral aspect, but it's relatively subtle. And so if I'm not fully engaged, if I'm not if I'm not my best self uh, and and using my best brain in that moment, I'll be less likely to even recognize that there's a moral element to the decision that I'm making. And then I won't use, my moral frameworks to to process that decision and so i'll be more likely to to end up with a moral failing for that reason in addition to the self-control based reason so across this program of research it, it does look pretty clear and it's been replicated by others as well that when we don't get the sleep that we need we are actually worse people from a moral perspective even using our own our own moral frameworks yeah 
And in terms of like unethical behavior, do people cheat more? Do people hide mistakes? Do people be are they more devious or the more deceptive? Because I think yeah. everybody listening to this is like, oh, I know a guy that one time, you know, hit some money here or did some this or, you know, hit this mistake. Is, does that happen? So in that 2011 paper, which was kind of the first one in this particular program research, we operationalized unethical behavior in different ways across different studies. So that was a four study paper. In one of the studies, it was a laboratory task in which people were able to lie, or at least they, they thought they could lie without being caught in order <laughs> to get uh, more raffle tickets for a drawing. Uh, and so we actually knew if they were lying or not, and we'd measured their sleep from the night before. And we found that uh, when they were sleep deprived, uh, they were more likely to lie to get more raffle tickets. Uh, in a, another study in that same paper, we had people self-report their own unethical behavior. So using that scale, um, I sort of hinted at with the behaviors of uh, lying about um, uh, taking credit for someone else's work or blaming someone else for your mistakes, that sort of thing, or five behaviors that are all kind of flavored that way. So we had people self-report their own uh, unethical behaviors. And again, we found that if they didn't get, get as much sleep the night before, they're more likely to do that. Uh, and in a, a follow-on study in that same paper, we had supervisors report those same unethical behaviors in their subordinates. So now it's not self-reports anymore. Now, all three of these approaches has its own flaws, right? So in the laboratory, it's an artificial context. Self-report, people are not always going to admit their own unethical behavior. Supervisor yeah. reports, well, they're not always going to see the unethical behavior. But we got the same results across these different approaches so that convergence across the different methods leave me, leaves me pretty confident uh, that these results are, are reflective of what happens in the real world, that when people don't get the sleep they need, uh, that they are, they're less ethical in their behavior the next day as a result. Fascinating. Uh, Chris, the final aspect I want to talk about with your work, which came out in 2021, is um, this paper that you published in Sleep Health, um, An Exploration of Employee Dreams. The dream-based overnight carryover of emotional experience at work. And the reason being is it's quite interesting because I've actually um, jumped into the dream world myself in the last year or two. And we have a website called Dream Study, um, dreamteam.study, where we're looking at the relationship between uh, dreams, uh, death anxiety and anxiety, and religious or spiritual practices as a mediating factor. And uh, it's been quite interesting we've got about maybe 350 to 400 people on this so far in, in, in this large survey and it's evoked a lot of uh, emotion maybe think because the word religion was in it but we've um had a lot of interest in it but not many people like us in the classic sleep world jump over into dreams predominantly most of the people in the dream world have been just you know clinical psychologists or maybe people in the philosophy realm or a little bit in the religious and spirituality stuff um can you tell us a little bit about this work and, and why you wanted to explore dreams? This was a fun project uh, that mm. was initiated uh, from my, my colleague, Anthony Klotz, uh, who's not a sleep researcher. He's, a, <laughs> he's an organizational behavior researcher. Uh, he's now at uh, University College London. So he told me about a conversation he had with his wife. So she woke up one morning and she was mad. And he asked why she was mad. And she said, it was because I was dreaming about work. Like I had to spend my whole day yesterday working and then for some reason I had to work in my dreams as well. And I was just <laughs> mad about that. Uh, and so we thought maybe there, there's kind of something interesting there that our waking lives and our, our, our dreaming lives can be connected and that work can play a role in this. And so we didn't go into the study with any strong hypotheses. So we, we actually, in the title of that paper, we, we clarify that it's, it's an exploration yeah. of these topics. 
but ultimately what we find is that when employees have a stressful day at work, well, that stress doesn't evaporate when they leave the workplace. Uh, it can persist even into their dreams. And so we find that after a stressful day at work, uh, people go to sleep that night, they have their dreams. The next morning when we ask them about their dreams, they indicate that there was more negative affective experiences, negative emotional experiences in their dreams that night after that stressful day at work, and that they are experiencing that same negative emotion in the morning after they wake up. So it looks to me like uh, dreams are sort of a linking mechanism by which the emotional experiences we have one day at work can carry over to the next day. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly an oversimplification of the role of dreams in our lives. Uh, and there's some really re interesting research out there, including uh, by Els Vanderhelm and, and Matt Walker, that says that we actually process this content while we sleep in a way that's good for us. So I don't want to frame this as, as harmful to us necessarily, uh, but I do think it's interesting that that these these things are woven together, right? The the emotional experiences we have at work and then how we feel while we dream. And then this can persist the next day when we wake up. Uh, and I think it's just fascinating. And there's so much more cool stuff that we could do with dreams. I just wish we had better tools for, for measuring dream content um, that would be yeah. more like live in the moment while they're dreaming. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and it's interesting what you've been just saying, referring to Elle's work and uh, Matt Walker, but this is kind of similar to Antonio Zadra and Bob Stickhold in their Next Up model. I don't know if you're familiar with their Next next Up model for dreaming. Um, mm -hmm. This network exploration, oh, I can't remember the acronym, but anyway, it's the, um, and it talks about this, about this kind of, you know, this processing of of these kind of, you know, these activities during the day where we're trying to make sense of it. So it's nearly like we're kind of, I don't know, in, in my basic layer, and it could be wrong interpretation here is, you know, basically trying to like encode them or kind of store them or shuffle them into boxes at nighttime. And this is what then makes us a bit more kind of, I suppose, stressed. And then Mark Soms work, who does a lot of consciousness work in South Africa, I think he's in Cape Town. He says about, you know, sleep quality then, you know, is really an indicator. Sleep quality is linked to dreams. So the more we dream, the more then it actually is related to sleep quality. So the more we dream, the better our sleep quality or the better our sleep quality, the more we dream. So and a lot of times as well, I've been asking people recently, like when they ask me about sleep, I go, well, do you have many dreams? And they go, no, I never dream. How would you rate your sleep? Oh, really bad. I'm always tired. And then someone else would be standing around going, oh, I have loads of dreams. How do you sleep? Oh, pretty well if I get the time, but my dreams are crazy. So it seems to be that the, the more we have of these dreams, that the better it is. But um, it's interesting that you've looked at this kind of stress during the day because this obviously this is this has been reported by many people, like you say, anecdotally about to get stressed out. It's like that other one as well, which is in that book by by Bob. And I think most people have had this as well, where their partner wakes up the next morning and didn't dream about work, but the dream that you cheated on them in their dream, and then they're mad at you for the day because they had a dream <laughs> that you cheated. Which I always say that says more about you than does about me. But anyway, um, that's that's another interesting one as well. And I think there's been there's been research on that as well. And I agree with you as well. There's been um, there's a great book um, by Jennifer Wint who did a, a massive like book. It's, um, it's there on my bookcase called Dreaming. She did her PhD in philosophy, but it, it really does highlight what you said, Chris. Is that the challenge is with dreams is that we cannot, in any shape, way, or form, objectively measure a dream. We cannot look inside someone's head and see what images they're seeing. We don't even know where the where the mind is. You know, people always say, "Oh, the mind's in the brain." We don't even know where the mind is. We don't even know where the dreams are. We don't even know where they're coming from. So, 
there's so many theories on this and this is um and our study is the same it's an exploration of like death anxiety and religion because in society many people have reported you know being visited by angels or gods to get information you know it's been lots of you know sort of big changes in the world um, and scientific discoveries due to these visions and dreams as well but we seem to discount them um, and I, I think it's great to see people like yourself jumping across to look at this and bringing in different disciplines again to kind of I always say to my say to people it's like these different worlds it's like an earthquake you know these like tectonic plates of like sleep and leadership or sleep and dreams bang and then we'll see what happens and what comes out of them because that's where the real fruitful research happens I've banged on way too much about that because I get excited about the dream stuff and people coming into it, into this area. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Where where do you think you will go next with the dream research, if anywhere, or would you just kind of go, that's one and done, and, you know? I think I'm open to doing more dreams research, but for me, that was mostly just kind of a shiny object to chase and play with yeah, for yeah. a while uh, and then kind of return to the, the main places where I play. Yeah. There's a conference on dreams next year in, in rural Netherlands on the border of Germany in an old abbey for the International Association of Sleep and Dreams, I think it's called, to have a journal called Dreaming. Hmm, um, cool. And it's, yeah, I think I, I'm i kind of looking at it going, will I go, will I not go? The fact that it's in an old abbey on the German border makes me want to go more so at the conference. So <laughs> <laughs> I won't lie. Um, Chris, just wrapping up, um, for people listening to this going, well, that was great. We had, we had a lot of discussion about sleep and leadership. Do you have any sort of like top tips you would say to people around managing sleep if they're leaders or emerging leaders? Do you have like the classic or like, here's the three things to follow or here's the five things? Or do you have just one overarching statement that you would advise people in, in leadership positions? So there's kind of two things, I think, that, that fit well together. Uh, and one would be for everyone, not just leaders. And that is if you get the sleep that you need everything in your life gets better. Uh, and we underappreciate that that also means that your work gets better. Uh, but yeah, your relationships with your spouse and your family and your health and all, all that stuff gets better, uh, including work. Uh, but I think an extension of that would be uh, your subordinates will do better as well. So you look for lots of ways to improve the behaviors and the work output from your subordinates. And you might invest a lot of time and money into training uh, and give them the right instructions and structure their work for them and all these other things. Uh, and those things might be effective, but there's this tool that you're overlooking, and that is your own sleep as a way to enhance your leadership effectiveness. Uh, it can improve your relationship with your subordinates. It can make you more charismatic. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that study, but uh, sleep can make you more charismatic, which can help inspire your subordinates. So you can make your own life better if you get the sleep that you need, but you can also make your subordinates' lives better and their work better by getting the sleep that you need. Um, so it's quite powerful uh, when you look at it that way. That's great. Chris, if people want to uh, follow your work, read more, and yeah, you're dead right. We're just, we've only you know touched on a few subjects that you, you've looked at, so there's plenty more work out there. What's the best way that people can follow your work, read your work, or maybe get in contact with you? Uh, well, I have a faculty webpage here at the University of Washington in the Foster School of Business. Um, I'm on Twitter, or I guess they call it X now, uh, at Chris24Barnes is my handle. Uh, it's supposed to be clever, like Christopher, Chris24, anyway. Uh, and then probably <laughs> easily find me on uh, on LinkedIn as well. I, I tend to post stuff on LinkedIn probably as much as anywhere else now. Excellent. Well, listen, Christopher, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was an, a, a great pleasure to meet you and have this discussion after reading your papers for a number of years. It's, it's great to connect. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk further. So thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. 